Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and my guests again this week are Millie Taylor and Adam Rush, the authors of a very interesting new book titled Musical Theater Histories Expanding the Narrative. This is the second part of a three-part conversation regarding their unique approach to relating the history of both the American and the British musical theater, and they accomplish this through their use of multiple thematic histories that take readers on a series of journeys down both familiar and less traveled paths into the art form's origins, development, relationships to the media, censorship, gender diversity, and national identity, to name just the subjects we'll be talking about today. If you missed part one, you may want to catch up with that episode before listening to this one. As always, this podcast is made possible in part through the generous support of our patrons. If you would like to help support the work of Broadway Nation, I'll have information at the end of the episode about how you too can become a patron. Here we go. Step out, step out of the sun Because you've learned, because you've learned On the outside, always looking in Will I ever be more than I've always been? Cause I'm tap, tap, tapping on the glass The third chapter is called Waving Through a Window from Intertext to Instagram. So let's talk about this. There's a bunch of concepts in here, again, that I think people might not expect to find in a history of the musical theater book. What was the main thinking behind this particular view of the history? This chapter is really about expanding the point that musicals don't just sit in isolation from the rest of the world or the rest of history and culture, but also that they are in total conversation at all times time with other media. 
There's a great quote in one of Stacey Wolf's book about that the history of the Broadway musical is also the history of Hollywood and Disney and recorded music. And there's many other art forms that we add on to that. So this chapter's focus is really about putting the musical as a stage form. And it, of course, travels the world and is often viewed live in theatre in an ephemeral environment. But also, most people's introduction to the musical is not sat in a theatre watching a live performance. It's watching the sound of music with your family, the film version at home at Christmas. And there's hundreds of other examples. And one of the ways for me that's interesting in how this chapter developed was that it started off being kind of much more form by form. So, you know, a short history about the film musical or short history around the start of cast recordings. But then it took a much more kind of case study approach, which started to bring up examples. These musicals live across media. And the one that's really significant to me is The Wizard of Oz and how there are multiple versions, stage versions and film versions of The Wizard of Oz, but also a ton of different appropriations and versions of that story, such as The Wiz through to, you know, the mega hit Wicked, which will soon become another version of The Wizard of Oz on film when it becomes its blockbuster film version in a couple of years time. And also, I guess another element of this story that kind of ties back to our main theme is how transatlantic and global some of these stories stories are. So with The Wizard of Oz, you know, it's widely known that it's this kind of American fairy tale and is seen to be kind of this widely accepted American text. And obviously Millie and I, as Brits, have a different relationship to it. We, of course, know The Wizard of Oz, and I'm sure I've seen it many times, but it doesn't feel part of our cultural history. That said, it's really fascinating that some of the big major revivals or ways in which that text has been shaped on stage has been in Britain by the kind of RSC production that happened in the 80s, I believe, through to Android Webber's rewriting of the show in the 2010s. We plot through multiple versions across media, but also how transatlantic and global this story also is. Even just simply batting forth between kind of Hollywood and LA and the Broadway stage in New York. These texts are constantly jumping around the world and across media. I thought that was interesting because in the United States, the original film version has only rarely been put on the stage and never on Broadway. They did a production at Madison Square Garden at one point. But in the UK, you've had several major and very high profile and high class, I guess, iterations of that. The stage version that is done here in the United States is done mostly in regional companies and high schools and things like that. It's not sort of seen as a central work of the musical theater the movie, of course, is. Why do you think that is? When you looked at the fact that there had been this high-profile British iterations of this, what's behind that, do you think? I wonder if there's a sense of it not being a part of the cultural history and not having the kind of it kind of being protected. I'm making all sorts of assumptions here. But I feel like, you know, there is this sense of it being a work in progress and that British artists maybe that don't have that kind of cultural connection to it have felt more comfortable re-engaging with the work and, and transforming it for new generations. There's been another recent revival of the show here in the UK that's very much trying to update it, very much trying to make it kind of diverse in terms of its casting and its music. And yet there is also The Wiz that has the exact same kind of agenda as 
as well. I think that is very, very perceptive because I grew up where The Wizard of Oz was on once a year on TV and all of America gathered to watch The Wizard of Oz as an annual, I think it was Thanksgiving, I can't remember when it was on, but it's sort of frozen in my mind as perfect and you don't want to screw around with it, except that doesn't mean you can't transform it into The Wiz or to Wicked or to something like that. But to take that Judy Garland version of it and rework it seems a little bit like a waste of time. And that may be a very American perspective because it's so, as you said, sort of hallowed, I guess. If you didn't grow up with that tradition, you wouldn't feel that way. So you wanted to meet the wizard. Let me tell you that you've come to the right place. Should I make you a frog or a lizard? Expression on your face If the way I come out is frightening That's the way I felt like coming on today Have you ever been kissed by lightning? Let me tell you that will make you go away How has social media changed the experience of the musical? Because you spent some time talking about that. It's very much added new opportunities for creators. So, you know, we do get to things such as the Ratatouille musical and similar musicals that were developed over social media during COVID particularly. But also what it's done is it's kind of provided agency to audiences and fans. And so really that history is as much as a history of fandom also in the way in which all sorts of new forms of engagement with the musical have developed. And, you know, YouTube, for instance, is littered with clips of musicals, of course, that might have been filmed hidden under somebody's seat in a theatre on a camera. But actually, that's not where it stops. Social media is not just this kind of storage tank for clips of musicals. It's also a starting point for different fan engagement. You know, when fans go and see a musical live, there's very much they can do to alter that live experience. But sat at home, they can edit together all sorts of compilation videos or different ways of engaging and creating new texts out of what they engage with. And, you know, that's combining different elements of social media or cast recordings. So for me, the social media aspect is important because of the way it provides a new sense of creativity for audiences and expands even further the ways in which we can engage with a musical. What's interesting about that is that you always think, oh, I wonder what the next big thing will be. And I think what all this does and what that chapter starts to engage with is you never can tell because, you know, the way it hops around and changes and transforms and moves into new media and particularly, obviously, the end of that chapter on social media opens up that doorway of creativity. But actually, the whole story is all about creativity, is about people being inspired to do things differently with a piece of work. If you think about Green Grow the Lilacs being the stimulus for Oklahoma, that's one of the most important things about musical theatre is that the creativity that's emerged using what's already there. And we've talked already about using musical forms that are there. We've talked about using stories. And now in this chapter, what's happening is we're talking about different kinds of creativity and media. And as a theatre maker, I have some ambivalence about this because I wonder, does social media 
Do you think it increases people's desire to go see theater live or is it eating away at the live audience? I think it's really complex, but it seems that all it's doing is expanding and expanding the audience for musical theater. For instance, the choice for Disney Plus to host the recording of Hamilton, you could assume could have been the death for one of the biggest hits there's been in decades. But Hamilton as a live stage musical doesn't seem to be going anywhere. You know, everyone that can pay a little amount of money to access Hamilton on Disney Plus can watch that musical whenever they want. But yet the live experience is still seemingly being desired. That's just one example of many. From that example alone, I don't think the live theatre is going anywhere. It's just getting new people into the doors. That's very reassuring to hear. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that it's true. The next chapter is very of the moment, at least here in America. And the chapter is called Easy to be Hard, From Censorship to Sex. You've probably seen the headlines even there about how drag queens are being banned in Tennessee, which made me think, can you produce a production of La Cage right now in Tennessee? I think the way the law is written, you actually could, but there would be some controversy around it. But as you point out, the censorship is nothing new. This goes way back. There has been censorship, both government censorship and self-censorship from the very beginning. Talk a little bit about that history and how that has affected the history of the musical. Yes, yes. Actually, I hadn't seen the information about the Tennessee banning, but it really is part of a long story. In the UK, it was legal censorship that was the starting point. And this was because the Crown wanted control of what was being performed in its theatres. And so the Lord Chamberlain was established as what was called Master of the Revels, which I think is a lovely title, Master of the Revels. And he was responsible for okaying whatever was going to be put on the stage. And that was the starting point for censorship in the UK. So in this chapter, what we tried to do was to discuss that history of what was the legal censorship in the UK and what its consequences were. But at the same time, we were looking at the US and thinking, so they don't have legal censorship, so it must be all free and easy and everybody can do anything they want. And actually, when you look into it, what you discover is that there is always censorship everywhere. It's just that different levers are pulled in order to enact that censorship. And you've just mentioned Tennessee. Theatre is funded and funding and finance can enact censorship because if someone withdraws your funding, that show can't be seen. So we talk about the legal censorship. We talk about the whole history of what happened in the UK, but we also talk about what happened from the founding fathers in the US and how different... The Puritans. The Puritans and how they decided that theatre was not an appropriate place to be. And so some cities like New York, which was more free and open, was the fortunate repository for the theatre arrivals from the UK. Theatre took off in New York partly because of a history of censorship, not legal censorship in the way that we think about it in the UK, but a different kind of censorship. When very famously, we talk about things being banned in Boston here, which you could do them in New York, but you couldn't put on that play or parts of that play in Boston. It's astonishing, isn't it? Because of that whole Puritan history. something as a Brit I didn't know. And I think it's no mistake that New York was originally New Amsterdam, where you are currently located in old Amsterdam. And I think that's part of why New York was different. Because of the Amsterdam connection. Yes. Because well, that's it was... something I must look further into that. That's interesting. <laughs> we don't mention that in the book. No. 
<laughs> but I think that story of the different means of censorship and the fact that censorship still occurs, partly through money, but also through other kinds of laws, through obscenity laws, indecency laws, through all kinds of ways. And most pervasive of all is self-censorship. And self-censorship occurs when people are frightened of writing what they want to or need to write for any number of reasons. And that's where, of course, cancel culture comes in as well, because people can be made to fear doing certain things. And then where does creativity sit? Do we only tell the stories that are safe to tell? Do we challenge the norms? Do we challenge the status quo? Again, it was a, it was a difficult chapter to write because there was a, so much I found I didn't know. But at the same time, I think it's a really important story to tell because I think our students and we need to know and be aware of the consequences of political correctness and cancel culture and not just legal censorship. And what are some of the musicals you highlight in this chapter as examples of being affected by this? One of them is a show called Mrs. Henderson Presents. It was the first nude show in the UK, which occurred during the Second World War. Had it been classed as a review, it would have got away with it. But because the owner of the theatre classed it as a theatre and therefore having plays in it, she had to go and put all her scripts in front of the censor who decided what was safe to put on stage. Stage, she was allowed to put nude performers on stage as long as they didn't move. And I found that very, very funny. And also the fact that it was a completely male censorship panel who would go and observe the show to check, which I think was quite fun. But, you know, I mean, I suspect many Americans don't realise that censorship, legal censorship, where every script had to be passed by a censor, didn't finish in the UK until 1968. I've always found that fascinating. You read like Noel Coward's diaries or things like that and talking about what can they get past the Lord Chamberlain. Yes, it's astonishing. So Hair was the first musical performed after the end of censorship in the UK. And then, of course, there are all the stories about Hair and the relationship to freedom of speech in the US because it fought the battles, because it had the finance to fight the battles, the legal battles. That was a revelation to me. Of course, I knew hair was as controversial as it was and was banned or objected to in many states, but I didn't realize how crucial it was actually from the legal front fighting the battles and winning so many legal cases around the country to ensure that we have the freedoms we have now. Yes. And that idea of the amendment rights for freedom of speech and that your actions on the stage are covered under the same rights. And I thought that was a hugely fundamental ruling. And it's the hair lawsuits that solidified that. Yes. Really interesting. Go away. Broadway Nation will be back right after this quick break. 
Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So then the next chapter, chapter five, is called Stand Up from Gender Duality to Diversity. So this chapter Millie's already had spoke about addressing is that it started as two separate chapters, one kind of trail in relation to masculinity and one in relation to femininity. And we found early on about the constant crossovers in addition to some of the more recent conversations we wanted to have in regarding to transgender or non-binary identity and the representation or rather quite thin representation in the musical theatre canon of those those forms of identity. I guess one of the things that we found most interesting when we started and kind of an early draft title in relation to women particularly was about from chorus girl to star. And that was kind of an early draft title of the kind of femininity section in thinking about how this kind of lines up with certainly the waves of feminism and thinking about women within the workplace and within kind of the social or leisure space and how there are kind of many early examples of female performers who really challenge social and gendered norms at that time period by being in employment and yet at the same time what's rooted within lots of these early examples is a sense of objectification if we look at you know famous american examples such as the ziegfeld follies there are many many women employed by ziegfeld you know hundreds of women on stage but they very rarely speak or sing or do anything other than kind of are there to be looked at right through to this idea that we jump forward 30, 50 years 
years. And we have people such as Julie Andrews, Mary Martin, Ethel Merman have become these major known Broadway stars. And what we start to see then for the rest of the 20th century into 21st is, of course, the development and the representation of women on stage as roles within musicals. Again, further shifts in the waves of feminism lining up with a whole now variety of roles for women. So that's obviously just kind of one side of it, but we're really interested also in that chapter in how this speaks to ever-changing gender roles of all kinds. And we jump right back to, say, some Gilbert and Sullivan examples and the Pirates of Penzance and how that show redefined or maybe clung to outdated gender roles, launching right up to the contemporary period where masculinity is really being questioned in musicals, often depicting young men, such as everybody's talking about Jamie in the UK, or Dear Evan Hansen in the US. Musical theatre is constantly rewriting or questioning the gender roles of society at that time period. And reflecting the tension that we've had in society for possibly ever about those roles. What is the balance between the masculine and the feminine? What is the correct balance there? Which, of course, is not an answerable question. Exactly. Is there a correct anything? It's about giving voice, isn't it? Absolutely. I also was taken by the characters at the center of musicals, as you have identified them, which is in the 20s and even before that, the teens and the 20s, what I call the Silver Age of Broadway. They're often young immigrant women who are working for a living. They're working girls, as we used to call them. That was something that came through from just after Gilbert and Sullivan, the musical comedy as it was being developed in the UK. Around the time of the Gaiety Girls in in the UK, there seemed to be a big connection with urbanisation, urban culture, working women. But it was not just because women were working on the stage, but women were working in society and women were coming into these performances. So there had been a sort of a period where it had become okay for women who weren't working to come to the theatre in the afternoon particularly. And so what was happening was a shift where some of the content was being provided actually for a a slightly different audience because men were bringing wives rather than finding other female companionship at the theatre. And so the stories needed to also appeal to those wives and to the single women who were coming into the theatre. And so there was a real sense that a different kind of working girl was being presented, which meant that she was starting to have some sort of agency. Clearly, they were still objectified quite strongly, and particularly as many of them, you know, part of the aim was to marry a rich man. But women were being presented with agency right at the start of the 20th century. And to some extent, that disappeared for a little while and then reappeared much later. Well, and I was also taken with that much later where you talk about a new kind of woman. Single mothers start to become the heroines or the protagonist of these shows, especially with something like Mamma Mia. I thought that was interesting that you identified that as a trend that emerged in the 90s or yes. around the millennium, I guess, really. I think there aren't so many of those, but they are there. I mean, Waitress, Mamma Mia, Adam will think of many more than me. But I think it does also come back to exactly this same point, that as society is shifting... So musical theatre is shifting and new stories are being told about people who are in society. So the politics of society is being reflected. And I think that's true for men as well. And as diversity becomes even more diverse and the possibilities are greater, there are new characters appearing, new voices emerging. That's got to be a good thing. And of course, it's always going to lag behind perhaps other forms because it takes so long to create a musical. A TV show actually happens very quickly compared to 
the five to six to 10 years that it might take from a musical to go from its original idea to being on stage. Yes, it does take a while. And and actually, it does musically as well. In that sense, musical theatre is quite conservative, not just in its representations, but also in its musics. And yeah, that's partly the result of the time frame of the time it takes for new musicals to come through. But I think it is also a somewhat conservative form because it's mainstream. Absolutely. But I also think having worked with a lot of writers on shows, if you write something today that is cutting edge, by the time it's on the stage, you run the risk of it being completely out of date. So in a way, musicals have to be more timeless, in my view, in order to achieve success, because they can't be in the moment in the way that a pop record can be. Well, I suppose that brings us back to what we were talking about a minute ago about the musicals that were created on social media because right. of course they can have that immediacy exactly little johnny jones the jockey from the usa will ride the pony yankee doodle english derby day jonesy's broken records every track at every beat so yankee doodle's gonna be the boy they have to beat sportsmen of the british house who followed his career have offered johnny anything to keep him over here But all the money in the Bank of England couldn't pay Enough to keep young Johnny Jones away from old Broadway If you want to take a trip, the surest of sure things Have your houses mortgaged, hop your watches, pawn your rings And put it all on Yankee Doodle, Johnny Jones is up I'm gonna give America the English Derby Cup He's gonna give America the English Derby Cup I'm a Yankee Doodle dandy Yankee Doodle do or die A real live nephew of my Uncle Sam Born on the 4th of July I've got a Yankee Doodle sweetheart She's my Yankee Doodle joy Yankee Doodle came to London just to ride the ponies I am that Yankee Doodle boy Let's jump ahead now to chapter six, which is another national anthem is the title. From Ourselves to the Other is your subtitle. Talk about this is about what it means to be an American, what it means to be British, how that is reflected and perhaps even advocated for in these musicals. Much of the chapter is focused on Little Johnny Jones, which is something dear to my heart because I wrote a musical about George M. Cohan. I was very interested in your take on that. Why do you single out that show? Well, actually, because... It was a representation of British people from an American perspective. So actually, that did the work of the book for us, that show, because it was about Americans in Britain. And so it was giving us not just representations of American characters, but how the Americans were seeing the British and what characters the British were playing within it. Because we were telling a story about how we see each other, which is the story of the chapter, it seemed like the perfect show. But I have to say, again, the issue with this chapter was, how do I know how the Americans see the Brits? How do we analyse how we see Americans? It was sort of complicated, trying to get that perspective on each other. But it's very interesting what you can see in the musicals that we each write and how we represent ourselves and each other and how we see ourselves. An example that really jumps out to me, and I think Millie and I saw it at different places in different times, but we've often used as a case study, is Kinky Boots. And as a show that, from a British perspective, feels quintessentially American and doesn't speak to a sense of Britishness at all, despite the fact that it's based on a British film and a British story and is set in Britain. So, of course, the show is a big Broadway hit, 
I saw it in London. I believe, Millie, you saw it in New York. Is yeah, that right? I saw it in New York. So we probably have very different experiences of, you know, this complete clash of transatlantic ideas. And we've also compared it to a British musical that isn't as popular, but Made in Dagenham, which is a British story by British composers set again in a factory that somehow feels much more British. And therefore, while we don't have an answer in this sense of we can maybe pin down a couple of ideas, what the book constantly raises is, well, what does it mean to be British? What does it mean to be American? And we never find an answer. And we probably never will find an answer. But I can certainly tell you from a British perspective, a musical such as Kinky Boots feels somewhat jarring. Can you identify what it is about it that seems so American? I, of course, saw the movie originally, and then I saw the musical. What was lost in translation, at least from your perspective? Well, I'm not sure that it was lost. It was almost too slick. The dancing was so incredibly wonderful. And I'm not saying that British dancers aren't just as fantastic, but I'm saying the desire for pizzazz is slightly different. And that's why we compare the two musicals we compare at that point in the chapter, because the style of choreography in Made in Dagenham, which incidentally was also based on a film and on a true story as well, the style of choreography is much more loose. It's about characterization and the awareness that if I were playing this character, I wouldn't be able to get my leg up to there or do that pirouette or whatever it is. And so the style of dance is different. So an ensemble scene looks very different. But actually, it wasn't only that. I have to say that in the New York version, I was trying to work out what accent they were trying to do. (laughs) Which, you know, is probably exactly the same when British actors do an American accent. It was that sort of slickness and sharpness, yeah, in the comedy and in the choreography that for me was the difference in those two shows. That's very interesting. I saw Made in Dagenham, which I enjoyed, but I have to say I did send other Americans to see it and they were a little mystified by it. And I think maybe part of what you're identifying there is correct. The style of presentation, for lack of a better word, just has a different tone to it, a different flavor Mm -hmm. to it, a different intent behind it, probably. Yes. Yeah. It feels more downbeat. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that, you know, there are slick British musicals and there are more urban American musicals. But it did give us pause when we started to look at, okay, so how are we representing ourselves and and each other? And, you know, obviously we start with cowboys as well in Oklahoma at a time when British men were being represented as a feat and we'd only just finished with Noel Coward while he was still around. Those representations were very different at that time in the century. Be sure to join us next time on Broadway Nation when Millie, Adam, and I return for the final part of our conversation about their fascinating new book, Musical Theater Histories, Expanding the Narrative.
here's the information about how you too can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for Broadway Nation. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech that's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Light in Dagenham, light in Dagenham, come get your cash, fight in Dagenham, fight in Dagenham, we are Dagenham boys. Light in Dagenham, we straight. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.